ladies and gentlemen, it is your boy Sam Gilstrap back again. The Ghost Lights Podcast. Ghosties, it's episode 57. We're going to keep coming at you. Why? Because you love the sound of my voice, or at least I love the sound of my voice, and you want to hear about theater, so I'm going to bring the amazing theater people to you. In fact, today's episode, as they've all been up to this point, but this one, for absolute truth, is one of the most special episodes. It will definitely be the realest episode I've done thus far with Sheila Ivy Tracer, my my acting coach and good friend and, let's be real, life coach. Sheila, how the hell are you today? I'm fantastic, and after that introduction, I'm on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's been amazing. It's been an amazing ride. And, and to, before we dive in, I, we've mentioned we've mentioned my acting coach a couple of times. Um, we've mentioned her by name, trying to get the word out there. Hopefully, we've steered some actors your direction. But if we haven't, um, folks at home, if you're looking for somebody to do a nice Zoom acting lesson, she is one to trust. Absolutely. Um, she Thank will you. she will challenge you and you will grow whether you like it or not and in the end you will love it. So <laughs> I'm glad you are here with us today on episode 57. Um, our unofficial sponsor today is Old Forester. Um, yeah, nice little whiskey, cheap, goes down smooth with some rocks in it, and uh, that's all I've got for the opener. Um, Sheila, you're doing well. How have you been handling uh, COVID and the lockdown? Um, I've been doing all right. Uh, you know, I, as I was mentioning to you before we came on air, I know 10 to 12 people who've been stricken, um, with the virus. And so it's very real in my life. Uh, one of them was an acquaintance through my union affiliation. Um, I didn't know him really well personally, but had met him at a convention years ago and he lost his life to the disease, you know, to the virus. Mm-hmm. Another friend was in the hospital. Others have been really sick. So it's a very real thing. And it it changes it a little bit, I think, when it's um, sort of at your doorstep with people you know and you realize how sick they are. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do hope that we can um, handle this with courage and grace and wisdom so we can ride the storm out better than we have been. Mm-hmm. What are some of the, one of the things that I've, I've always kind of admired and try to learn from you is uh, this ability to just kind of be still and let things happen. Um, and rarely do I see you like effort against what we, I guess what we'd call the universe's push or pull. Um, how, how do you like respond to something on this scale? And, and even the even the protests that have been happening. I know you haven't been out of touch with those things. No, uh, I've been very in touch with them actually as a, um, as you know, I'm the uh, president and national board member of SAG-AFTRA mm-hmm. for the Colorado locals. So we've been very engaged, um, the union and the leadership. I'm often involved with the AFL-CIO. So a lot of the work there has been legislation to protect laborers to protect the front line to make sure that people um, who have to be out there to keep the country running are taken care of. Mm -hmm. So it puts it very much right in front of me on a daily basis as far as the things that I'm interested in and making sure that, you know, artists fall through the cracks. 
right? Mm -hmm. So we uh, fell through the fell through the cracks on the CARES Act, which if you're both a 1099 and W-2 earner then it was difficult, um, you know, as far as unemployment and 1090, um, the PPP and everything. So there's been a lot to keep me and those of us working in that arena busy. And when I say those of us, I'm not like on the front line of writing all that legislation and stuff, but, but I'm aware of it. I'm aware mm -hmm. of what's going on. For me personally, um, I joked with a friend the other day, as you know, I've had some misfortune with car accidents, uh, horrible fall on the ice, mm -hmm. and uh, suffered a traumatic brain injury and other physical injuries. Um, a lot of us who suffer from those things are used to, on some level, dealing with isolation. Uh, what it is to sort of be alone in a world that often isn't understood by family, by friends, by working communities. And so you're used to being home a lot, um, having to self-manage and self-organize and rediscover yourself in the world. So because of those things, I feel like I had a little bit of an advantage coming into this. Mm -hmm. um, I, I knew what it was like to sort of have to self-isolate and sequester. And I have been since March 11th. Wow. For That's the good. Part. Yeah. yeah. It's, I've, uh, I've had friends that have been... I've got a specific friend who has been basically self-isolating since before COVID, not because he saw it coming, but that's just, he's in a similar way. I mean, we're not in a similar way. He's got his own things that he's dealing with, but it is, it is forced him while he's worked through things to isolate himself. And it, it's one of those, like I asked him like a week into it and he's like, I haven't even like, it's another day. I'm, I'm fine. I'm very comfortable. I'm happy. It's now, everyone else is kind of on the same page. And I'm hopeful that one of the things that comes out of this is some more mindfulness. Yeah, I mean, I would hope so. That's conversation I have with people that I'm close to is that, you know, when you have to live with yourself, uh, you look at the world a little differently. We have a lot of distractions mm -hmm. in this modern world of ours. And it's at our fingertips. It's, you know, our phones, our computers, it's everything there is to do. And you mentioned, you know, the protests and the civil unrest. I mean, it was a perfect confluence of circumstances that I think allowed us, you know, culmination of all the efforts throughout history at this point when we're all sort of isolated and a captive audience mm -hmm. to have to pay attention to things that otherwise we care about but it's a, it's a news blip that we look at on Monday and by the following Monday, there could be something else that trumps that, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse the pun, but- No, you're, you're fine. And, and I'll I let think, it slide. <laughs> yeah. I think that, um, that the confluence of circumstances were ripe because people are having, like you said, to sit with themselves and when we do and we have fewer distractions, the ones that we do have perhaps are more meaningful, um, yeah. you know, because we're all being challenged with basic survival and uh, communication and, and being without maybe the people that we love the most and the communities that we can't be with. So we're paying attention differently. And that is 
you know, pretty much as you know, from working with me, the whole approach to the work. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's amazing how like when you are forced in this situation, like when you're forced with just yourself, you, you are given the, the seeing the given circumstances is a whole lot easier. And now, of course, I'm only talking about just being a person, being out, you know, living your life. But it, so much of that is relatable to, yes, the work that you and I have done. It's just you try and strip away all the distractions that either are presented to you or you create within yourself. I'm really good at doing the latter. And just, for lack of a better phrase, being present. Yeah, it's just observing them. I mm -hmm. think the isolation allows us to be better observers. Mm -hmm. And when you're a better observer, you're a better listener. I think we delude ourselves sometimes at how well we think we're listening. Because if we're multitasking, that's truly a difficult thing to do. Um, you know, when we have so many things going on in our lives that we can't slow down enough to talk to somebody if they can't bing us on Facebook, you know, because I came kicking and screaming to that platform very yeah. recently, uh, again, because of needing to um, be accessible to membership and, and through the union and things. Mm -hmm. But um, I would get so frustrated at people who are like, well, just read my Facebook page. I want to have a five minute conversation with you. Yeah. You know, I want to just hear your voice, feel your pulse through how your voice quivers or how smooth and silky it is that morning when you're rested and, mm -hmm. you know, just, just connect with people that way. And I, I miss that. And I mm. kind of feel like the pandemic, people are connecting better. Yeah. Yeah. It's forcing us to, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I have since dialed it back some, but I, I am definitely keeping in touch with a lot um, my, my, my family, my fam, as I call them a little more consistently, it's been, it feels kind of like a dumb moment. Like I should have been doing this from jump street, but when you can't see them as regularly or they're making the decision, like I have a good friend, Brian Walsh, and we've worked out um, off and on pretty consistently um, since the lockdown started via Google hangout. But I haven't seen him since I think we did the first protest in early June together. And that was the only time we've seen each other over the course of, of the, as I, as the people at home, you can't tell, I've got my arms stretched out to signify just how long of a time it's been since we've been in physical contact with each other. But yeah, I mean, and because of that, like we're doing Netflix parties to like talk to each other, seeing each other as we do our Google Hangout workouts. Yeah. And I, and I think people are connecting more from who they are rather than what they're doing. I think mm. a lot of our life is busy in the doing. Yes, yeah, we connect through what we do and we tend to sort of define ourselves by what we do mm -hmm. rather than who we are. And when you're looking at life, um, so many people losing their lives and it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. People who have survived unbelievable things are dying from this virus, you know. Yeah. Um, and then because we're not running around bumping into everybody at a huge party or the scene to be seen in and we're all having to deal with how do we really feel about these issues um, about our families about life it just feels a little more earnest a yeah. little more grounded I do hope it's something that we take with us um, 
as we heal from this experience and we weather the storm mm -hmm. um, because there will be a day when we're on another side of it. I don't know that anything ever goes back to what it was. And if it does, then something's wrong. You know, mm -hmm. that has to evolve too. Um, so yeah, it'll, it'll be really interesting. And it'll be very interesting to see how the arts shift mm. with that and our world in theater. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. What are you anticipating along those lines? Um, well, I think content for a while is going to be interesting. I think that this is causing people to think in a different way about their own existence. And so I would imagine playwrights and people who are maybe hadn't written before who are now writing because mm -hmm. they're isolated and at home and sifting through their brains and trying to figure stuff out that um, we may see a shift in the kind of material um, that we're being asked to perform, what people are exploring, both on personal, social, global consciousness. I mean, that's always there. That's, that's the one thing about the arts. Um, I guess if I were gonna say anything about this time right now and people talk about how artists are not essential or what we do perhaps is not essential, when in fact the majority of the people in this world, unless they're totally cut off or they choose to live as isolationists, they're listening to the news, they're watching TV, um, whether it's narrative programming or reality shows and movies, and they're listening mm. to songs and poetry slams, all of it. And so artists are a part of our everyday lives. Mm. And I think we often look to artists to be able to comment on what's going on politically, socially, uh, economically, um, culturally, uh, they're like court jesters. We get to yeah. say things and do things and comment on things that most people don't, you know, can't get away with. You're uh, absolutely right. So I just think that the change will be possibly um, a more reflective and contemplative discourse initially. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine there, the inverse is true also, a need for escapism, for, you know, phantasmagorical musicals and um, just really delightful and enjoyable things to celebrate that we can hug each other again and mm you know, look at each other over a decent plate of sushi and, you know, play Absolutely. a little bit. So oh. I think both of those things will be true. Hmm. I, I can't agree with you more in terms of um, artists' essentialness to society. It, we've been in lockdown. Netflix has put out more stuff in the last m two months than I've seen them put out in the entire time I've been subscribed to them. There are new music, songs, new LPs dropping every other day, P artists that you haven't heard from in a while that have been paying attention to what's going on. I mean, Beyonce dropped a, dropped a single about, about the protests, about the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that's out there, and it wouldn't have, like, she knew to respond. I had to get this off my chest. The audience, my fans want to hear something from me. Gives us something. J. Cole responding to um, being called out by another by another rapper in the, in the community, no name. I mean, he responds. 
He responded. She responded to him, whether or not you which side you're agreeing with. There's a discourse that's being created by artists, even in this time where we're not necessarily in the same room together. We are trying to bridge the gap and create something for people. Maybe musicians might have it easier. I, I'm not. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to start like name calling that. But uh, I mean, because as actors, sometimes so much of what we do revolves around other people creating right. the space, the material, so on and so forth, and or just cameramen in the room recording it. But uh, yeah, I think we we I've been trying to stay as positive as I possibly can about this. And maybe one of the things that I have going for me is that I'm a hopeless romantic. You and are. I have, yeah. You are. That I, I know about you. I've got no doubt in my mind that live theater will come back. It will be different. And there will be, there will be companies that might not come back. But the artistry, the artists aren't going anywhere. You might what? need to take a job. You might need to do something to like keep yourself afloat. Yeah, do whatever you got to do to do that, but understand that we'll still need the voice. Yeah, and if you look back historically, I mean, we've had plagues and there were horrible things that we've lived through that took a country down, a nation, mm -hmm. um, the world. I mean, polio, all these things that have happened mm -hmm. and people resume. Time goes by, people resume, and it becomes part of the fabric of your life. Mm -hmm. just like the flu. I mean, I think there were a lot of conversations at the beginning of the pandemic when people were trying to maybe say it wasn't going to be as bad as, as it was and comparing it to the number of um, people that die every year, 80 to 90,000 from the flu alone. And that's yeah. considered normal. It's part of what we live with. We don't see on the news every day 2,000 people died this month from the flu, but if you've got 80 to 90,000 dying in a year, that's thousands of people every month mm -hmm. that we don't hear about or we stop hearing about how many people died in car accidents, how many people died, how many. And I think because it's new, it's something we don't have control over. I think the things we don't have control over really scare us. Um, and so uh, at some point it'll become or the residuals of it, or how we manage to live with it, will become part of the new norm until the next thing arises. Artists are incredibly resilient. Mm -hmm. um, they are this fascinating combination of vulnerability and strength and courage. Um, who else has to put themselves out there to be judged all day, every day in what they do, right? and to dig deep and dare to cry and laugh and scrape the barrel and bear it all so the rest of us can go on a journey. And um, it's an incredibly resilient, uh, courageous, heartfelt community of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we wake up and we do it all over again the next day. Yep. That's right. Sheila, theater, how did it happen to you? Ah, uh, you know, I'd like to say something cliche, like I'm sure it's in my jeans, you know. Yeah. Do you have but like I, a script in your pants or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> behind the left <laughs> pocket on my right cheek, no. Nice, nice. Um, That's Chekhov, what the hell? Huh? <laughs> it's Chekhov, you got yeah, Aquavania exactly. in your pants, what the hell's going on? Exactly. Um, <laughs> actually, 
actually there there is a moment uh, that I'm I feel fortunate to have this memory. Mm. It's it's one of my earliest. Well, it is my first memory really around the arts uh, in a formal way. I come from a family that we sang musicals at home all the time. My dad had his reel to reels, and we'd have the entire soundtrack for The Wizard of Oz or West Side Story or something playing. And we knew all the words to everything before I had ever seen any of it. Mm -hmm. But I was in school, and I cannot remember. I think I was in the second grade. Um, I'm pretty sure I was in the second grade. It's in Pennsylvania. And there was a talent show and there was a little boy, and when I say little, it's because he was really small for his age. We're all pretty small in the second grade, but he was tiny. Mm -hmm. And I never, I don't have any recollection of him ever speaking. And then he got up on stage for the talent show. And I believe his father was a postal worker, a mailman, because he came up and he had the old, huge leather postal bags that they carried when I was a child. Yes, I'm old enough that postal carriers had big, thick, heavy leather bags. And he, <laughs> he slung this over his shoulder and across his chest. And he goes walking across the stage and it's barely, he's barely can keep it from scraping the ground. And all of a sudden he burst into through sleep, through rain, through snow, the whole postal thing. Mm -hmm. And I remember this very quiet, very never speaking, small, unassuming person lit up like a Christmas forest, let alone a Christmas tree. You could hear a pin drop in that auditorium. And I remember like the way I'm sharing it with you now, it's like I'm there. Mm. I had goosebumps all over and I remember I just, I felt him so deeply, like he believed everything he was saying. And in that instant, I knew how much he loved his father. Mm. Um, well, I believed that his father was a postman and, and how much respect he had for him. And I just remember thinking after that, that I wanted to be able to make people feel the way he made me feel. Mm. And it was astounding to me. He just transformed. He became something else than other than what I knew. Now, he may always be that and just a shy person, as you and I both know, artists yeah. can be really shy people. Yeah. And then they get on stage and get naked, right? <laughs> so, in, I, and I don't mean physically necessarily, but no. physically, emotionally, mentally. And that was the beginning of something very different for me. Um, it, it put me in touch with that part of my personality that is about being of service and holding space for other people, caring about how they feel, you know, wanting them to laugh and to know joy, all those things. So that, that's how it came to me. Mm. And then it was, it was a while before... You know, I actually took the stage literally theatrically, um, be, you know, because I was involved in so many things where I thought, you know, this is really what I want to do. Hmm. How, how, what grade were you in when you saw that? Poster oh, board? I was in the same grade. I was in oh, the second grade. 
and he was in my class you know okay. he was do in we, my class do we rem remember his name i think his first name was michael shout outs to michael yes big ups mike yeah that's he's, awesome he's a cutie pie I should have I should have gone through boxes to find I still have the pictures <laughs> of my class from school and um, that would be a nice thing to do to and see maybe he's on the internet maybe how just a question that just came to me now like how how important are memories like that for you they're like, really, I'm sure that's not the only one so right um, you know, memory is an interesting thing. I, when I suffered um, my brain injury, mm -hmm. and I realized over time, you know, when you go through different things that you, any kind, I was in a jock for a long time, so I'm sure, you know, I had concussive head stuff or whatever, and you just pick yourself up and keep on going. But after the last one, and when I really started to suffer short-term memory loss and the ability to have linear recall, um, and people weren't able to help me or they didn't believe me. So I started to do a lot of research on my own. And in one of the brain study um, things that I looked into, there was an individual who talked about memory and said there really is no such thing. Mm -hmm. and, and what I'm about to share with you probably helped to save my life at a time when the belief was if i couldn't remember then how would i know who i was right yeah because we're so defined by who we are externally and what we can recall and identify at least other people and a lot of doctors that i was dealing with that that's all about that kind of thing yeah. and what he said was every time you have a memory you change it mm -hmm. so and when i sat with that and I thought about it, you know, I look back on points of view that I've had about life, about love, about religion, and how I saw that at 15, at 25, at 45, at 55, you know, I'm over 60 now. So it's that reality of you have a shift in perception. I can go back when I thought, wow, the way I viewed um, that particular incident or that person in my life has completely shifted because I have a new point of view. Mm. And I thought, wow, I wasn't as open as I thought I was, or maybe they weren't as open as they wanted me to believe they were, and I was so willing to acquiesce. You know, mm. it cuts both ways. So memories, I think, are as important as anything in life. It's how we relate to them. It's mm -hmm. the power we give them. And so if memories cause you pain, you have the power to shift your relationship to that memory, you know? And I think, um, you know, in acting, you know, when we create characters, it, it's great actors have that ability is to understand the world that that actor lives in and to be able to sort of surrender their faculty, their senses, their appropriation of life and everything else through those eyes that smell, that touch, and what kind of memories that person would have. Because you and I could be in the same place at the same time and write about it completely differently. Five years later, go back and look at it and actually be closer to the other person's memory than you were at the time. Yeah. So 
Memory for me these days is remarkable in that if I do remember something, I'm like, oh, it's all in there. I just mm. got to figure out how to get to it. And then I have to ask myself, is it worth the time and energy to have to go back and find it? Because what is it going to give me that I don't have right now? Mm. And, um, and, and for some things, um, I, I lost my sister last year. Mm. And so there's things that I so desperately want to be able to remember and or not to forget, right? Mm. But I have to accept that if I do or I don't, um, that I can be present to what I feel. And what I've learned is that if I go through my senses and what I feel, everything comes back to me. Mm. It's not linear. Like I can remember times with you in my house during a session and I'll go to a moment and then everything about that feeling will bring back all the words of that session, you know? Yeah. And then what's important in it is not all the things that were said, but the connections made and the gains, you know, the growth that was had, um, the doors that it opened, the things that it made me question, you mm -hmm. know? So that's a, I'm sorry, a long answer to your question, but I don't know that anybody's ever really asked me that before. Well, it just it just came to me, and never apologize for a long answer. Long an long answers are uh, gold in podcast life. It gives me an opportunity to sit there and, and really pay attention to you. And I'm thankful for that that explanation. Um, as we talked about how theater happened to you, our relationship. There's this other life that I've. I've only seen once. I got to see you perform at the Paragon shortly before it closed. And I want to talk about your acting career. Mm. What are some of the highlights? What are the, some of the things that defined your process? I'm going to close these blinds here real quick, but I'm going to keep talking to you so yeah. you can hear me. Um, I don't know why I didn't think you were going to ask me that, but I didn't think about that. <laughs> I'm happy to talk about it. Um, gosh, we'll, go to, we'll get to the, we'll get to the coaching stuff. Here oh, no, 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 <laughs> this is fine. This is fine. I mean, I, I love acting. Acting is such a remarkable way to gosh, do so many things, exercise your demons, celebrate your joys, um, run away from the world, run into the world. It's all those things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> Everything I've ever been blessed with the opportunity to participate in, even the things that have made me suffer, <laughs> there's been <laughs> some remarkable joy or lesson or growth that's come from it. I think that's the, the beauty of the life of an artist. Um, I can say that wow, one of, one of my first favorite pieces, it was the I mean, I had done, you know, musical things because I had always, I sang in a couple of bands in high school and uh, was in choir and um, a magical group. And so I did a lot of performing that way. I didn't do a ton of theater because I was a jock. Um, and then until I injured my knee and that kind of took me out of the level 
that I was playing sports, I finally started doing theater uh, my senior year in high school, legitimate theater. Mm-hmm. And so, but it wasn't until college and afterwards that, you know, I started doing like big full-blown musicals. And I think probably one of my first just, oh my gosh, moments I'm here was um, I was in West Side Story. I had been called back for the role of Maria. And at the audition, uh, the director and the choreographer, uh, the musical director actually, and the director looked at me and said, "Um, we called you back for Maria. You can act, you can sing, you can dance, you can do all these things, but we have nobody who can, that we're really crazy about for Anita. And they had a lyrical soprano, which I'm not, a girl who had a beautiful voice um, who could do the role of Maria. So they asked if I would read for Anita. And I, you know, in that moment, it's like, oh no, I don't get to sing to Tony. (laughs) I don't get to do all these things. But, you know, you take one for the team. I mean, they're asking in earnestness. And so I go out and of course I'd grown up listening to this and my dad's reel to reel. So I hadn't looked at the music before the audition, but I knew it at least from the soundtrack. So uh, with Rita Moreno. (laughs) So I walk in and they give me the sheet music and I do it and I was cast as Anita. And it was just exhilarating. It was exhilarating Mm. to take that stage and to become this person. And my roommate at the time, she said to me, (laughs) she said, do all actors kind of become what they're doing? And I said, why? She goes, because for the last... For the last month, all you do is sing when you cook and you're saucy and talkative and do and I was teaching her daughter things and all kinds of stuff and I guess I had kind of become Anita at home but I didn't know it Mm. so um that that was the first one that just sort of launched me into this love of the work Mm. you know because that's a lot of time in dance choreography a lot of time with singing a lot of time with the acting you know particularly for Anita so um, that one always stands out because it was like the first big one that just ah grabbed my heart. Mm. Was that college? Huh? Yeah. Was that in, okay. And embarrassing. I I don't change it, but I that's the only thing I have from before I was like thirty five years old on my resume. <laughs> Still, because I can't take that off. I can't take it off. I I kept a, I kept a tale of two cities on my resume. My last college show the only college show that i had any like noticeable stage time i kept it on for like 15 15 years <laughs> yeah it just came off like literally like a year ago i'll never take it off my resume no. i'll never take it off it's no shame. just one of those things no shame whatsoever oh yeah it's yeah. i look at it and you know i walk in the room with confidence it's my joy nice but um yeah i mean and and here of course i mean i've done uh, when I did Sound of the Voice with Paragon, and I think that's mm-hmm. what you were referring to. Correct. And that was a few years ago. <laughs> yeah. 
It was a while ago. But working with Warren and Dale and yeah, that that was an amazing show. It it was a very unique piece of theater for any of one that remembers and was able to catch it. Um, I didn't know it was a Warren Cheryl directed piece. That's really cool. Um, I know he's involved with the Paragon, but uh, that was my introduction. It was one of those things where, like, it was even grounds for our first conversation. It was like I, I felt I always feel weird hanging out after shows as an audience member and as an actor. It's like, uh, okay, time to go. But I, I was like, I know I'm, I'm about to meet this woman. I'm about to take lessons from her. I'm about to, I'm about to pay her. I got to talk to her, especially because she was good. I was like, oh, I got to, I got to, of course. And so I was like really interesting because there's a part of me that forgets that you're an artist and I and mm. forgive me, but it's only because so much of our relationship is based in this friendly teacher student relationship in a lot of ways. I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely a friendship there. There's a bond that's bigger than just, you know, a classroom setting. But uh, that type of stuff, the stuff that you do when I ain't around, which is yeah. your life, you know, like that's the stuff that I'm, it is really interesting. When, where has your career taken you? When you, where were you in college when you were in West Side Story and where has it shifted you since? You know, it's an interesting thing when you ask, where does your career take you? Or where do I take me, you mm. know, consciously or unconsciously? I think too often I, you know, as a coach, and because I coach people across many spectrums, um, story slam artists, actors, writers, directors, politicians, um, you know, corporate executives, attorneys. I mean, you know, as a life coach, um, someone who coach artists, you start to see themes and patterns that are true across the board, you know, when people are coming in looking to find themselves. And too often, and I think particularly in our culture, there's um, a need to define and find ourselves, which we talked about a little bit at the beginning of this, mm -hmm. through our external world, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, knowing that I was going to talk to you tonight, I mean, I thought about this vaguely in some ways, like how I arrived at where I am or what I'm doing and, and how much of that is conscious choice, how much of it is avoidance out of fear, how much of it is the result of my own courageous heroism, mm -hmm. heroism, That's right. <laughs> you know, uh, what I've conquered, what I've run away from. And, you know, how we make our lives rather than looking for signs to tell us which way to go. And I think mine's been a combination of those things. Um, from college, I mean, it was an, an interesting journey for me. And I, I don't, you may or may not know this, but before I went to Colorado College, which was where I did uh, West Side Story, I was at the Air Force Academy. Um, I was active duty Air Force. I was stationed there and they looked at my records and they were just taking, they had just taken a few classes of women. And so I ended up actually at the Air Force Academy and my freshman year there was the last year they had all men in the senior class. 
and I went into the military because I had flown before that. I had always wanted to fly, and I worked for a private flight school, and I took flying lessons, and I wanted to be an astronaut. I've had this love of outer space forever, either outer space or Jacques Cousteau. I either wanted to hang out with Neil Armstrong <laughs> or Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> and as an actor, I can pretend to be an astronaut <laughs> or a deep sea diver. Yes, uh, but it, There's I a think, Simpsons reference there, and I'm going to leave it alone. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, I think for me, it was always about this, this awareness of this universe that I live in, something much bigger than myself. And I think acting um, was a vehicle for a more expansive exploration. The life of an artist seemed to be more forgiving, more allowing for those of us who were, you know, reaching for the stars and picking ourselves up out of trash bags or whatever we found ourselves in, right? Mm -hmm. So um, there was a freedom in that. And I think I felt that I could know myself better through the journey it, was, it would ask me to go on than almost anything else I had done. And I had done a lot of things. So I've, I've managed and opened restaurants. I've um, managed property, apartment buildings. I've run nightclubs. I've been a DJ. Um, I was an accountant in the Air Force. I went to work for a general contractor as an accountant. Um, I mean, just a lot of different things. So it's like, okay, I have the aptitude. I can choose to put my energy to these things. But the world of the arts, um, acting, music, all of that was always the biggest pull. Mm. I wasn't always supported in going into it, though. Um, I graduated from high school in 75. And if you were a girl with an intellect at that time, you were directed very differently. And the attitude was, oh, anybody can do the arts or you go into that world and, you know, it's not a happy one. It's not a good life, mm -hmm. um, you know, those kinds of things. So there wasn't a lot of support for it, but I, I did it. I, I was, I was actually, many, most people don't know this story. So this is the first time I think I've ever talked about this publicly. I, um, I used to hang out in a crowd and we'd all go out dancing. And one night I was out dancing with a bunch of friends, a bunch of people I worked in the club scene with. And these people approached me at the end of the night and they said, had you ever thought about being an actor? And I didn't want to say yes, because I didn't know who they were. So I said, why? And they said, well, we were just watching you and watching everybody else watch you all night. And she was an agent. Mm. And that's how I got my first agent. And I started doing commercials and, you know, um, television and film work. Mm -hmm. um, because I was out dancing in the club one night. Wow. It can happen anywhere. Yeah, can happen yeah. to anybody anywhere. I didn't know how I was going to step into it, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's crazy. That's really cool. You talk about um, people not, let me find the words here, supporting the choice or at the very least providing the 
a, a balanced form of um, feedback. How much resistance have, resistance have you felt on your path as being an artist? Uh, quite a bit, and for different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, this is a question to unpack a little bit. Okay. Um, you know, when I first wanted to get involved, and again in the 70s, I still think that the attitudes towards women and what they wanted to do, or a woman artist versus a male artist is a little bit different. You know, um, women in film in particular, you know, back in the 50s and 60s were glory days compared to, or in the 40s and 50s, I should say, compared to, you know, what we've had to fight for now. And mm -hmm. then being a woman of color as well, uh, mm -hmm. so many times, uh, it was an issue of my ethnicity. Oh, you're our first choice, but you make it an interracial couple. I was told that often. Um, mm. They wouldn't pair me with a white male, or it's not written that way in the script, or people, I mean, literally told to my face as if this is not a problem to say that. Yeah. Or um, the audience won't accept it. We like you, but the audience will not accept it. And then I remember finally a, um, a kung fu movie came around and I went, great, you know, mm -hmm. I'm going to get a role. And I go in and I audition. They say, you're terrific. But of course, we want the female lead to be blonde for the Asian lead. You know, so I couldn't win for losing or lose for winning or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of resistance um, for women, for women of color. Um, statistically, um, as a woman of color, I would have less than 10% of the opportunities that my Caucasian counterparts would have, just in terms of actual auditions. And I'm talking now, you know, not just theater, but film. Um, and then uh, I had an agent, uh, Donna Davis, a collage, and some of the listeners will remember Donna, bless her, she's not with us anymore. And she was the first person who looked at me and she said, Sheila, there isn't anything you can't do. So let's go for it. And she would send me in for roles that were wit written for men of color, knowing mm. that what they were looking for was other than Caucasian and somebody who could be authoritative, you know, have a presence. And I would often get those roles. Mm. And so it sort of became my thing to take anything that anybody would see me for. You know, one of the things that I think is a huge mistake today is the extreme to which people take branding. How does mm. everybody see you? You know, how would you define yourself? And I think some of that is smart, you know, particularly yeah. maybe in a commercial venue or whatever, but it's so limiting. It's so limiting to the whole of who we are as human beings that I should be defined by a type. Oh, so then, I mean, I just looked at a friend's reel the other day and she's Asian and lives in LA. And I don't, you know, I feel for, I mean, everything is a judge or a doctor, a judge or a doctor, a judge or a doctor. 
and my early career in the film industry was news anchor, judge, or doctor, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, again, uh, you know, a long answer to your question, but, and then sometimes we're our own worst enemy. You know, sometimes those voices get in our head and there, I went through a period where, why am I going to bother to go? Because they're just going to tell me no. So my thing now is if I have the time, the energy, it speaks to me, I think it'll grow me or it's going to pay me a hell of a lot of money. Um, and it's stupid to walk away from that because there's nothing wrong with the project. You know, I think we just have to be smart at how we look at things and not let any one perspective put blinders on and limit us so completely. Mm. Yeah. Do, do you find in terms of not limiting yourself, like, forgive me, within the last two years or so, I've started to really kind of embrace the type, not the type, the, my ethnicity. Mm -hmm. I'm a Navajo Irishman. Okay. And I can no longer willingly take a performance or take an acting opportunity that is written for somebody that is not Navajo or Irish. You know, like if it's specific, I can't, like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And I, and I, and there were, there was a time where I built a career off being racially ambiguous. ambiguous. Yeah. And it's a great, it's a great title to kind of have until you start to realize like the ramifications that come with it through no, like there's no malice. It's not like I'm auditioning to like screw over another person that is ethnically a better fit, but that there's still, there's still a little bit of a, a stiff arm provided to that person, whether I try to or not. Yeah. I think that, I think there's a couple of things to talk about in what you mentioned, which is really deep and the fact that you're even thinking about that you know speaks so much to who you are as a person and your character look i'm i'm chinese mongolian mongolian and russian you know i'm yeah. mostly russian and rarely do people cast me as that although there are parts in russia where i everybody looks like me but it's not the americanized version of what it is to be Russian. My dad was a Russian Jew, born and raised in the Bronx, okay? Mm. So it hasn't been until I've gone gray that those roles are coming to me more, right? Mm. Um, because when I had my dark hair, my Asian attributes were much more present. Um, I think as far as what we'll do and what we won't do, Meryl Streep can play German, Irish, English, Australian, the dingo white your baby. It doesn't matter. <laughs> nobody cares because yeah. nobody's appropriating white culture. No. So I think, first of all, we all have to come to our own conscious. You know, art is subjective. There are people who cast people because that's who they want to work with. But I think you also have to look at a higher consciousness and where we're at at the time and be sensitive to that. And I think we need to make our best efforts to cast Hispanics and, you know, mm -hmm. Asians and blacks and, you know, indigenous peoples and roles written for them. We can't yeah. keep 
yellow facing. We can't yeah. keep right. Yeah. And you're and the, what you're saying too is, I mean, for the LGBTQ community as well. Like, um, I mean, there I, when I I remember like, one of the things that you gave me the confidence to say was like, I can play any part. Mm-hmm. Like I I'm, I can do it. But even as I've grown, like I know there are some things that yes, I could probably do that and do that well, but it's not right for me on an on an ethics level. Yeah. Like I I thought back about recently doing Casa Valentina and and I and I had rationalized a lot of my character's choices. It was a man that had decided to live as a woman but was heterosexual. Right. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. That that doesn't that doesn't make me uncomfortable. Right. Because I'm understanding that I, you know, I like women as Sam Gilstrap. And if I just lived every day in a dress and makeup and, and, and did my hair a specific way or decided to wear a wig, whatever, like I would, that would, that could be me. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was easier to tolerate. If you had asked me to play, um, oh shoot, I'm forgetting the character's name, but there's, there's a more flamboyant character mm-hmm. in the show that I think that I, who identified, who was, that identifies. It. And yeah, and he was that. pretending not to be. Yeah, and I from that perspective, I'm like, I don't, I don't think I should play that part. Right, and you in, know, in retrospect. Yeah, yeah. I there's a really interesting thing because then you know I've heard people raise like for example, in the film where Neil Patrick Harris plays a straight man, uh, mm. the good, um, the one with Ben Affleck. I'm sorry the. It's a pretty harsh film. Um, came out a few years ago based on a book. His wife goes missing. They think he's killed her. And then she ends up murdering Neil Patrick Harris in the end. But the only reason why Ooh. I bring it up is, you know, people want to come out and then they'll say the inverse. Well, then, then do we, then should gay actors be allowed to play straight roles if we don't let straight people play gay roles? And I think, again, we have to remember there are, first of all, as artists, people, you know, it's a subjective thing. Somebody's creating a piece of art. They want to do something. But we need to be sensitive. We need to be mindful of how communities have been marginalized, have been oppressed, where their presence has not been allowed to flourish. So every opportunity we can give the LGBTQ community, you know, um, Mm. whether you're transgendered or you identify as gay, people with disabilities. Why do we not see people in wheelchairs written for roles that are not movies or stage plays about wheelchairs? And then Mm. theater saying, well, we can't accommodate that. Well, why not? You know, Um, why, why is somebody with a stutter have to be what the story is about. Why can't that just be who that person is? Um, and so I think there's so much growth that needs to happen in regards to our own humanity. And to go back to where you and I started this conversation, because how do you do an interview today and not talk, talk about the pandemic and social unrest, totally. but that all these things that are um, sitting in, in the news cycle longer than just a heartbeat because we don't have all the distractions 
that we sit with that and we take a look at what it's going to take so that marginalized communities no longer feel marginalized, where young boys and girls don't grow up with a target on their back because of the mm -hmm. color of their skin, the faith that their family practices, the accent that they carry when they speak, mm -hmm. um, where they were from. And so I think those of us who've had opportunities, and even though I've had so much, um, so many no's in my life based on, you know, my ethnicity, mm -hmm. my gender, all those things, um, I still feel privileged. I still feel like I have opportunities that others still don't. And so then I have a responsibility based on the experiences that I had and how horrible I know that feels to mm -hmm. be able to stand for things and give up opportunities when there are people who should have them. Yeah. And I've been a part of panels in this town where people say, well, they're not, you know, they don't have the skill level or whatever. And I'm like, well, how are they ever going to get it? Yeah. If, if they don't have the opportunities to walk in those shoes, to step foot on that stage. If you keep Absolutely. bringing people in from out of town and are you going to the theater companies that are predominantly Hispanic? Are you going to Su Teatro? Are you going to 5280? You know, mm -hmm. um, are you going, and, and there's several theaters around town that yeah. if people were visiting, they would discover really incredible human beings with amazing talents, with opportunities could continue to grow and grow beyond um, any idea of how people want to pigeonhole us. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I, I would hope that post-pandemic, um, that there's an awakening and an awareness given a uh, pandemic plus social crisis that is way long overdue. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm tired of sitting on panels talking about it. How much yeah. longer do we have to wait? If this was your child, it would have changed yesterday, but it's somebody else's child. So it's going to wait for six months or four years when the pendulum swings. What's well, been swinging back and forth with an axe on it, you know, chopping people down, and it's time to just catch it and not let it swing back anymore. Yeah. Absolutely. So hopefully all those things we talk about, you know, this self-reflective period that people are creating space in their seasons to bring in artists from who live in different cultures and have different perspectives and a different worldview because of their culture, their ethnicity, their gender, their sexual orientation, you know, mm -hmm. and, and celebrate that. Yeah, absolutely. It, we can't, there's no growth without the challenge, without pushing ourselves, without putting ourselves in that uncomfortable space. And we have to have those uncomfortable conversations. I mean, we're talking about like, I, I had a, a spew of consciousness uh, journal entry a couple nights ago. And I talked about uh, 
the one of the sentences that's fresh on my mind is like, there doesn't seem to be um, a, an understanding that there needs to be a maturation process for anti-racism. Mm. And that was the thought that it does occasionally exist in my brain as a, as a Navajo Irishman who has noticed a dearth of uh, native stories being told anywhere. I'm not calling out my theater community. That's anywhere. And I'm sure black people can say the same thing and the list goes down the line. And so at the end of that sentence, I'm like, well, we've had 400 years of a maturation process. It's about time. Just be like, do that work now. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because out of that 400 years, it's probably only been in the last century. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there are certain uh, wise scholars and, you know, (laughs) people with, huge capacity for humanity that could point out the ills of the ways of the world. But in terms of conscious, um, political, social movement towards maturation, we're really young in that. True. I mean, when you think about some of the arguments going on today with our founding fathers who wrote a constitution that if you take it out of the fact that was written by people who were, you know, much of whom were slave owners or whatever they believed in, mm-hmm. you know, there's this wisdom there about our inalienable rights. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. We are yeah. endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so all that gets written and yet they're still practicing in their lives what has been known to them. So what we understand, and that's why I think the maturation is lost on some people who will argue, well, why don't life, why, you know, um, all lives, all matter. lives matter too. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't get that out. No, I no, you're there. Saying it enough. Oh uh, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. No, because I was going to say something. All lives do matter. Yes. But, you know, you have to hold that spotlight center stage. I think one of the things I would say to that is like, yes, all lives matter. But what is the value to your life if black lives don't matter as much? As much, exactly. So that's where when you're talking about the maturation process, for all our intellect, for Mm -hmm. all that we may know as academics of 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 life and of history and of human beings and of society and culture and politics, our academics don't, we're not equal to, we're not running parallel to our systemic understanding, our inculturation to where we don't recognize, like one of the things that's missing in our culture today, Mm. we talk about racism a lot and everything then becomes black and white you're either a racist or you're not a racist. When I grew up, there was a concept and it was prejudicial bias. Hmm. And I was talking to Lisa Young about this a week or so ago and they created the idea web, you know, Facebook page, which is just- I'll be one of their producers. Right? Yeah. So I was talking to her about it and I said, when I grew up, there was this, there's this gray measure area in between. And what that gave 
and understanding for was that you could be raised in an environment where you were taught that black people and Chinese people and white people are all the same and brown people and red people and everything. But there could be prejudicial biases that are part of the fabric of what we were taught in schools or how we speak to people and what our languaging is that you may not even be aware of support. Right? You know where yeah. we're going. Absolutely. So I think today we get into trouble because we're so quick to say somebody's a racist rather than they're unaware of their bias. They're unaware of their yeah. inculturation. And so mm -hmm. if you label them a racist and they're truly not, you alienate them. Now, who do they get to identify with? And yeah. so I think we have to be careful through this maturation is we have to be willing to look into the mirror and say, what are my own biases? I have reverse mm -hmm. biases. Yeah. Well, I, that's, I think, I think those conversations could be had with the people that are open. That, that maybe say something for the first time and they don't like how that sounded. And they're now, now that's a place to have the conversation. That's an inroads. We can have that talk. And the, one of the things that sucks is it's like, we have to have these tough conversations. But like, if you're open to it, it's not that tough. If you're willing to acknowledge that you have been conditioned in a specific way of thought. Like we all have, like, even if it's not like toxic and detrimental, every single person in this world has been sold a bill of goods one way or the other at some point in their life that they still to this day hold on to. Whether, whether it's right or wrong, it probably works for them. Thus, they've never been faced with the con with the with the conflict of it existing right. in their brain their brain not brine <laughs> well it, it's kind of like that your brain has yeah. been pickled for a yes. long time that maybe that's very true freudian thing there yeah. we, well, our brains mean, have been brined yes the old forester glass is now empty and on the other <laughs> side of the room i'm done with it <laughs> but i think a lot of it is too is how much we're conscious of and i mm. think you know Political correctness can sometimes swing too hard and too far. And, you know, comedians were getting taken out right and left, mm -hmm. you know. But you know what? Sometimes the pendulum swings and it has to swing far or we'll yeah. never find middle or it'll be centuries from now and you and me and our friends' children's children's children, you know, um, we'll still be having this conversation. So I, I think that, look, I think we get into a lot of trouble when we try to turn anything into a cookie cutter process. And, and there are certain things that are black and white where you, you know, when it comes to discriminating against anyone mm -hmm. based on <laughs> anything that you know the color of their skin their culture their gender all these things that we totally have control over right yeah absolutely you don't get the memo before yeah <laughs> like no, check you sheet? didn't send me that one for this time okay my bad my yeah bad. so um i think we just have to be willing to be open the thing that i think is hardest and maybe this will swing us back into um, specifically around theater is 
you know, when you say people just have to be open, the hard thing is when people think they are and they're not. And they don't hear themselves when they say, oh, I'm just so sick of having it shoved down my throat. But they didn't grow up like I did where, where would my career have been? Would I have made different decisions? You know, um, when I won the actor search and I was flown to LA and mm. the things that were said to me and the things that happened, why did I come back here? Why didn't I stay there? What made me believe that I, I wasn't gonna go back there until I had a community of friends and I felt supported. Yeah. And I wasn't seen, you know, as an Asian woman, there's a lot of stuff that happens to us as identified as sex objects. Mm -hmm. And that's when the limited perspective of somebody is, well, you're only a war bride. That's mm. the only way you can exist in this country is because you were a war bride. And those are, yeah. you know, the majority of the roles that you're offered. You know, it's yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. I give the dead air people. I'm trying to find the right words. Um, it's amazing. You know, I've been very fortunate. I've been very privileged. I've got a really good career and I've built a lot for myself through it. And to, under, to understand and hear just how difficult the grind is for others up to this point, what feels like all the time. You know, it's hard, it's hard to process. With that being said, you talked about, Sheila, how people process things differently. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really am so thankful for is your ability to read how people process that without them actually like giving it to you freely at first. Even if maybe freely is not the right word. Maybe the way they carry themselves is a free admission to that to the way they carry themselves. How how your ability to read people. You talked about a little bit as when you were younger, mm -hmm. how it manifested yourself in, in yourself. How has that grown? How important is that to you? You know, I to read people is an interesting thing because I think what allows for it is you have to be cognizant of the fact that you can't get right about it. And the moment you decide you have it figured out, you're off, you're off track. Mm -hmm. So some of that is probably just the way I'm wired. Um, I come from a long line of teachers when I learned more about my family heritage, mm -hmm. uh, a very long line of, of teachers. Um, and I do believe there's something that we carry in our DNA. Uh, grew up in an environment where we, my dad being in the military, we moved every two and a half years of my life. I went to three different schools for the fifth grade. Uh, we moved to Japan when I was 12 years old and in the eighth grade and were there for five years. And during that five years, I lived in three different houses, two different Air Force bases, went to three different schools. So uh, when, you when you have to mix it up a lot, you, 
you don't have the benefit of knowing yourself through a singular community. Mm. And because we lived overseas, we, you know, that's not an easy place for family to come visit. And given that my mother was born and raised in Shanghai and all of her family for the most part is still in mainland China. And so I grew up not knowing any of those relatives. And, and so my father's family, because we moved so much, there were a limited number of relatives that we actually got to know very well. So we had a very small family nucleus. And then my community was changing all the time. So I think military kids, uh, you know, kids of attaches or people who travel all over the world, you, you, if you have a certain type of personality and you're adaptable and you survive, you constantly are having to learn to read your new environment. And then the teaching thing kind of it fell on me. It wasn't something that necessarily I thought, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I just thought I would be a performer. And then what would happen, I would be on sets or, you know, in a theater production and people say, how do you do that? How do you do what you do? And I would just sit with people and start working with them. And then one thing led to another. And I, when I was studying and with other people early on, I used to get really frustrated um, by how I would often see teachers speak to other people. And it wasn't that they were horrible or bad or ill-informed, but a lot of times I felt like it imposed on them either a technique or what the teacher was looking for. They were directing more than coaching. Mm -hmm. And so I learned a lot about what didn't feel right for me watching that. And so over many, many years of doing this, what I found was while technique is an important thing to have, because when you're having a bad day, what do you fall on? You fall on these techniques. Yeah. But when the technique becomes bigger than who you are, I think there's a problem, you know, because we don't wake up in the morning and I don't go, oh, I'm going to have an interview with Sam at six. So I'm going to manipulate the situation. <laughs> I'm going to feel this way and I'm going to do that. No, I just think about, for me anyway, I think about being open. You know, I knew you were gonna ask me two questions and you know, mm. about how theater came for me and mm. one that you haven't asked yet. So <laughs> Don't spoil it. I won't. Don't spoil it. I'm not it. gonna say it. Okay. But, uh, but I mean, the idea of sort of planning who we are. And so my way of approaching the work is much more organic around who are you and how do you operate in the world? To try to get you to operate like me is to bring you out of yourself. Yeah. So what I have to do is I try to look at techniques. I beg, borrow, and steal from anything I've ever read, anything I've ever studied, any good or great or mediocre teacher I've ever been blessed to study with because you you pick and pull from everything and what i have found that has been so significant for the people that i've been blessed to hold space for is when they realize that the most important thing that they can bring to their art is their 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 soul their point of view so if i'm busy shoving 
my way of how it should be done down your throat, you're never going to find that or you'll find it, but it'll take a lot longer. Mm -hmm. And the techniques may help you to perfect a craft, but you're not going to have as much joy in that process until you're living in your own skin. And it's just like, you know, when I use a lot of sports analogies because I was an athlete for so many years. And when you're in that zone and you're not thinking left, right, left hook, you just flying mm -hmm. through the air. That's to me what acting should feel like, what directing should feel like. And I say should from my point of view, not for anybody else, but it's when I'm not thinking and I've done all my homework, I've studied the script, I've broken it down, I understand what my relationships are about, then that's my bungee cord. Mm -hmm. Those are the notes that go in my hip pocket. But once I arrive, man, I free fall. I don't know how that bungee cord's going to recoil me. And if I try to control that, I'm in trouble. So every mm -hmm. night I'm on stage, I'm going to follow the arc of that relationship in the play. But if you deliver a line to me differently than you've ever said it, and I don't tell the truth on that, the audience is going to feel it. Then we've got mm -hmm. a singular moment in there that lied to them. And if I go with you, as long as it's within the parameters of that relationship and it honors the construct of the play, we discover something new. And now we're in brand new territory. How you keep a show fresh, eight shows a week, nine months a year, if you're not, every time those words are coming out of your mouth, they're being born brand new. And I think yeah. the only way we do that is when we give ourselves permission to live that, not get right about it, not make it perfect, not make it look good, sound good to the point where nobody cares. But we just, we lay in it, you know? Mm. You know, we roll in it. <laughs> we just, we let it come for us. So you learn, you, you know, to, to listen to somebody and to see where they're living in it is to listen to how they language. Not only what they say, but how they say it. How do they sit? How do they stand? Um, are they busy trying to impress me and be good for me? Are they, are they, right, you're raising your hand. They can't see yeah. you. He, Sam's yes. blushing now and laughing and raising his hand. He tried so hard to be good for his acting coach. And all yes. I kept trying to do was to get him to take the shit in the cage and throw it up against the wall. Yeah. You know, because until you're ready to do it and smell the stink, you know, how do you grow? And then there's other people who just are so self-deprecating that it's like, stop already. <laughs> Is that, yeah. Moment. The hand goes up again. Yeah. Hand up yeah. again. Look, we all, <laughs> it's like a pinball in a pinball machine. We all hit those buttons, some more than others, right? Mm -hmm. So I think for me, it's, I hold space for you to, see yourself, hear yourself, come slamming up against yourself. And that any feedback I give you is not critique from an artistic point, but it's just my barometer for whether or not you're telling the truth. 
Now, if I think you're missing something analytically in the script, in the monologue, in the song, in the speech, in your voir dire, whatever it is that you're doing, then I'll help you to find that. And I love doing that, as you know, through relationship. Because you can use all these techniques for analyzing a script. You can be the best master at divulging, uh, getting everything out of a script. And it still doesn't mean you can play it. So I always have you look at your relationship to the character, to the material, that character's relationship to the other character, to the environment, to all those things. Then when I see you balk, when I see you confused, when I see you making emotional choices rather than action choices like what you need, because we wake up in the day, it's like, what do I need? I need more sleep. I'm hungry. I need somebody to give me a hug. I haven't had a hug since, you know, um, what, what comes before February. March, February. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have not had a physical hug, I think, since February. So when you wake up with that, it's like, why would a character be any different? Mm-hmm. And then it's looking at the difference between excellence and perfection. I'm not interested in perfection. I'm interested in excellence. So as you know, the other thing that I think helps me to see people is where they're in their way. Um, their fear about seeing themselves as beautiful just as they are. Yeah. And having excellence in the process um, about your practice so that you can rely on the craft that you're developing to be there for you in days when you're struggling because emotionally you're having a hard time, you're not sleeping. Um, when my sister passed, it was really difficult, you know, to focus on anything else. Mm -hmm. But there are things you have to do, and that's when you rely on technique and craft. But then that craft and technique has to hold you so that everything that you're vulnerable to, that is the universe of your own body and soul and life force within you, you can bring to fulfill those characters. And oftentimes during your times of greatest struggle, you can do some of your most brilliant work. Absolutely. Mm. I am, uh, without sounding like a broken record, Ghosties, I am extremely thankful for that process that she's cultivated and how she comes to people. So I am, um, thank you, Sheila, for sharing that with us all. Um, we're at that point in the pod where I want to ask you one last question. What is that ghost light you'd leave on for the next generation, Sheila? See, I knew you were going to ask that question. All of a sudden, I'm totally emotional uh, yeah. after this incredible conversation that we've had because um, we really do have such a responsibility for how we address this life we've been given and this world that when you think of future generations and how they'll look back on what we've left them. And 
I think I would have to go back to something I alluded to earlier, which is don't wait for me or Sam or your teachers or your parents or anybody else to define for you who you are. Make yourself in the world. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think part of why I'm drawn to being an artist is until I understood who I was separate from my family, my culture, my gender, my race, you know, strip me of the skin and all that came before that clearly has, that has nurtured and given me so much of who I am today. Part of being an artist is recognizing that we are clay and we can mold and make ourselves and that you can make a life and a reality even when nobody else around you sees it. Nobody else wants to acknowledge your brilliance and your beauty because of the color of your skin or your gender or your sexual orientation or how much money you do or don't have, you know, what kind of a car you drive, what theater company you work with or don't work with. We won't always know who we are. We won't always understand that. And we can drive ourselves crazy trying to figure it out. But while you're doing that, you can make a life based on things that your heart is drawn to, that your soul is drawn to, the things that feel honest and true to who you are. And make yourself, make your dreams, um, make your relationships built on those things. Don't put them on the back burner and wait for somebody else to give you permission to have that to be that, to do that. Let somebody else's no light a fire under you to say, well, thank you very much for that piece of kindling. Mm -hmm. And then set it on fire and prove them wrong. I mean, most of what this world is and what we are is space. So fill it with your joy, with your passion. And when you feel scared, fill it some more. Absolutely. Mm. Thank you so much, Hill. Ladies and gentlemen, this is episode fifty-five of the Ghost fifty-seven, sorry, of the Ghost Lights podcast. The artist is Sheila Ivy Tracer. Um, if you are into this episode and would like to know more, um, please hit me up, and I uh, will I will pass along information in order to contact her. Um, I just want to say once again, thank you so much for, for joining me today, Sheila. Thank you so much, Ghosties at Home, for listening and hanging out with us and um, having a tough conversation with me and her and understanding that there's a process that is taking place. And I am, I am hopeful that when we come out on the other side, it will be, it will be what we make it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, once again, the song is War by the Hypnotic Brass Ensemble. Please, if you haven't done so already, go out and download it. Um, keep them afloat. And with that, Dan, do the damn thing.